We turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 1. We begin our treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism once again this morning. And as we do so, we take Lord's Day 1 as really the theme of the entire catechism. And Romans 8 beautifully reflects that theme. We hear the inspired word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. 
for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 1, found in page 3 in the back of our Psalters. Question 1. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready Henceforth, to live unto him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? Three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are many things that frighten and scare us as we go through life. As children, we think of things that would cause terror. Perhaps sometimes that happens in connection with Halloween. Some masks or fake blood or something else is used to try to scare us and to terrify us. And if we allow ourselves to be caught up by it, we can become extremely frightened. But what is it that's the greatest fear that we have? Is it not this? To be left alone. Perhaps that's happened to some of you that inadvertently your parents left you alone at church or alone at school or forgot about you maybe in a shopping mall or something. Sometimes we are concerned about that, that we're going to be left alone. Or maybe even more so that we might run out of gas somewhere in our car, have car trouble in the middle of nowhere. And here we are alone. And maybe in the midst of a storm, what's going to happen? How will we ever be safe? Or even maybe more than that. We think of what it would be like if we had no family, no friends, nobody that cared about me, nobody that was there to protect me or watch over me. Sometimes we think about that and sometimes we even feel that way. It feels as though there's nobody that really cares about me. It seems like my life is so empty and so lonely and so hollow. Nobody to provide me with food or clothing or shelter. Nobody to talk to. If I would go missing, nobody would even, nobody would even know. They wouldn't even care. They wouldn't even realize it. Sometimes we see the hopeless pictures of orphan children. Orphan children that are in countries maybe where they've lost their parents, where there's nobody to care for them. And those pictures tear at our heartstrings. Beloved, that's you and I by nature. Whereas those orphans, left alone to ourselves with no comfort, no hope. And that's by choice. In Adam, we forsook God. And we decided to choose for the devil and for the pursuit of our own will and our own way. And what did we do? We chose a life of loneliness, a life of despair, a life of suffering, a life of hatred. Every single person that's born apart from Christ comes into this world alone. The question we face is of the highest importance this morning. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And what's the answer? Beautifully, it's this. I belong. I'm not alone. God has worked a wonder by which though I was alienated, I was alone, I now belong. I have someone who cares for me. I have someone who loves me. I have someone who's watching out for me and who's constantly doing so. So that every step of the way, I'm assured, I'm not alone. There is someone, my Heavenly Father, who cares for me, watches out for me, and is ordering all things for my good and for my salvation. Notice how striking the catechism begins here with this Lord's Day. This Lord's Day is not just for adults. This Lord's Day is for you children and young people as well. Your place as those who have the sign and the seal of Christ's blood and his perfect work. And notice the emphasis here is not as the catechism opens first on how I would show that I'm redeemed. It's no, it's on what God did for me. The emphasis is not what I must do. It's 
This is what God has done. God has given you a Savior. He's accomplished a wonder of redemption. The emphasis here is not what could you be or what might you be, but the emphasis is this is who you are as a wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And this is the highest joy of your and my life. This is an introduction to the catechism, this Lord's Day, and it's intended to be such. And it gives us an introduction of what's to come. And all of the various points that are raised in this Lord's Day are going to be addressed in greater detail later on. What does it mean that I confess that Jesus is my Lord? What does it mean that God's providence is such that he so preserves me that without the will of my Heavenly Father not a hair can fall? All of those various doctrines and the comfort that they bring are going to be treated in greater depth as the catechism proceeds. And the emphasis now from the beginning is this is a personal document. The catechism stands out that way from the Belgic Confession and from the Canons of Dort. We're appreciative for both of them. They set forth what the doctrines that we are to confess and what the confession of the church is to be. But the Heidelberg Catechism in a special way makes it very personal and constantly is directing us to comfort. We're not concerned here about others. The concern is me. As I walk through this life, do I know that comfort that is my only comfort? There's a lot going on in my life. There's a lot going on in your life. So many struggles, so many disappointments. God puts in our lives at times things that overwhelm us and we don't understand how we can go forward. Where's my comfort? The the word comfort is used seven times just in the first half of the catechism. And the word profit is often used. How is this for your profit? How is this for your comfort? How is this your encouragement? Beloved, we need this comfort because we are spiritual orphans. That's the way the apostles labored among the new converts. As they came to a town and as they brought the gospel and as they preached the truths of it, what was their intent? Their intent was to bring comfort. And that's our intention as we witness to others. We find people that are in the midst of loneliness, despair, trouble, and we bring comfort. And what is that comfort? It's the truth of the gospel. The glorious wonder that Jesus Christ laid his life down in my place and he bought me. He paid the price that I deserved in order that now I might know and believe to all eternity I am not alone. I belong. The apostle treated the saints like a father and a mother bringing comfort and encouragement to their fearful children. And that's the perspective of the catechism. And that's the perspective even more of the, our Heavenly Father as He comes to you and to me. He comes to us in love and He sets forth before us then the comfort and the encouragement that we belong to God's covenant. We belong to Jesus Christ. And as those who belong to Jesus Christ, we are assured of His everlasting love and care. We look at that as our theme, the comfort of belonging to Jesus. Noting, first of all, that we are included in God's covenant. That's a marvelous wonder, beloved, that Jehovah God takes us, sinners and sinful, and takes us into his covenant. Secondly, that God gives us to know comfort in every sorrow. There's nothing that escapes his control. And finally, the necessary knowledge then, 
that threefold knowledge of my misery, my deliverance, and how I might show my thankfulness to God. God has taken you and me by a wonder of his grace and included us in his covenant. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we need to understand the significance of that. God created Adam and Eve in the beginning as glorious creatures who lived in covenant friendship with God. They were God's covenant friends. God created them holy, righteous. He gave them a true knowledge that they were able to live in fellowship and communion with the living God. What did they do? They chose the devil. They chose death instead of life. They were living in a marvelous wonder. They had a beautiful garden. They had communion with the living God. They talked with him. They walked with him. And what did they do? They forsook that. And as they chose the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they chose death. And what did God do? You guys know what God did. God had to put them out of the garden. God had to put flaming sword guarding that garden. They could no longer be part of that garden. And the picture was they got cast out of fellowship and friendship with the living God. Now man cannot be happy without that friendship and fellowship with the living God. That's the way God created him. That's the purpose for which God made him. Now man tries to, natural man now, outside of that communion and fellowship, does everything in his power to try to find happiness and joy. He pursues it in the things of this life, pursues it in fame and honor and glory. But there's a void there. There's a constant void because God created man for communion and fellowship with himself. And now outside of that communion, how will man fill that void? And so he tries to do it with the things of this world. He tries to fill it with the lust, the pleasures, the pride. He tries to fill it with the entertainment and all of the things this earth has to provide but there's always a lack and man knows that he marries but not in a covenant bond that can be enjoyed in communion and fellowship that reflects God he marries for lust he marries for money he marries for power marries for the pride of life and there's no fellowship with God no communion with God men and women band together then for political fellowship they try to established kingdoms and they even try to model them to a degree after God's kingdom after God's glory but they can't do that they try to say we're gonna have a kingdom where it's inclusive where all peoples are included all races but it doesn't work they fall apart because of the pride and the sinfulness and the prejudice of man they face war war that disrupts their work and along the way they realize that that war is just making it more and more difficult for them to enjoy any kind of communion or fellowship. And pretty soon they find themselves alone, very distinctly, alone. And God causes sin to reap more sin. God is not mocked. And those who forsake God and find themselves alone then, God adds the judgment then of that loneliness and that struggle. And God destroys their kingdoms, their possessions, their honor, their fame. They turn to the bottle, perhaps. They turn to other things to try to escape their sorrows. Others try to hang on just till they can die because death now looks more and more appealing. Some even try to take their own lives and perhaps succeed. But there's no hope. There's a hopelessness apart from God. 
And apart from covenant fellowship with the living God, man is alone. And man knows that. And man knows that when I die, there's going to be judgment. Even though I try to convince myself that it's not the case, man knows that death will expose them to the wrath of an almighty God. There's no comfort. There's just despair. And then they go to hell. And hell will not involve fellowship. Hell involves the horror of God's judgment. Hell is not a place where individuals encourage each other. Hell is a place of isolation, experiencing the wrath of God everlastingly. There's no fellowship in hell. Hell is a place of God's judgment. Now, beloved, we're part of that sinful race. We with Adam forsook God. And we with Adam find ourselves by nature then in that state of hopelessness apart from God's grace. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that because by God's grace, we have for the most part been brought up in homes where from early on we were taught about God. We were taught about the love of God. We were brought up with the Bible from our mother's knee and we were taught about the wonder of God's love and God's care for sinners. And we were directed to Christ and the salvation that is ours in Him. And so for us to understand the experience of those who have not had that privilege, have not experienced that wonder, that have God's wrath in their lives and the loneliness and the debilitating effect of that sin, it's hard for us even to fathom it. But sometimes God gives us to experience it a bit. We fall into sin, and for a time, we continue in that sin. And as we continue in that sin, we get a sense of this sorrow, of this loneliness, of this despair. Sin becomes a barrier for a time to experience God's love. And as we're walking in that way of sin, we're not communing with God. We're not fellowshipping with God. Our sins plunge us into deep despair, into loneliness, depression, Our sins move us to cry out to God. And we cry out to God through tears at times. With the psalmist, we start to question, where is God? Is God good? Has God forsaken to be good? We experience troubles and we wonder, has God cast me off forever? Am I alone? At times like that, we get a bit of a feel of what it is to be in unrepentant sin with no hope. But by a wonder of God's grace, God doesn't leave his children in that situation. God works repentance. God works sorrow for sin. God restores by a wonder of grace. God uses means in our lives. He uses loving fathers and mothers. He uses office bearers. He uses spouses, sometimes children, sometimes parents. God using all of these various means in our lives to direct us, to see our sin, to confess it, and to look to Jesus Christ alone and to be assured of this wonder of wonders. Though I'm a sinner, though I'm chief sinner, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. God has worked a wonder of grace so that I know and I believe what he's done for me. And I am assured of the forgiveness that is in him. I belong. Now, beloved, how do we belong to Jesus? We can lay out a number of ways in which we belong to Jesus. First of all, eternally. 
And that's the emphasis here that we find also in Romans 8, verses 29 and following. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. We realize that our salvation doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with all with God. God's the one who chose us before even we were born, before even this world was created, and we are moved to awe and to thanksgiving. God chose us as one of his sheep, and he gave us to Jesus Christ before even we had any say in it. And God determined then to live with us forever. What a wonder. But then secondly, we can say we belong to Jesus not only eternally, because in time he came and he laid his life down and made the sacrifice that was necessary to accomplish that atonement. And again, we have that laid out here for us in Romans 8. For instance, verses 32 and 33, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus laid his life down in my place. I was a slave to the devil. And here came Jesus. And he bought me out of that slavery. And he did so by giving his own life in order to make that grand purchase. So that now I belong, not to the devil, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought me with his precious blood. What a wonder. He came in human flesh to pay the price that I owed to accomplish my deliverance. And as we're going to proceed through the catechism, we realize there is nothing I could have done to escape. I couldn't do it myself. There's no other creature that could have done it. God sent his own son by a wonder of wonders, born of a virgin, to do that which I couldn't do, to accomplish this wonder. So that all that I am, I owe to him. He chose me from eternity and in time bought me and gives me to know then that I belong to Jesus Christ. And he didn't just buy me with money. He bought me with his own blood so that there's no dispute over the precious character and nature of that atonement. He stood in my place and took upon himself what I deserve so that there is therefore now no condemnation. I never have to worry that maybe there's still some suffering I have to endure. He took it all. But then thirdly, in time, in my life and in your life, he gives us his spirit by which he makes us willing servants and gives us to know the gift of faith so that we confess this is for me. There's the objective forgiveness and then there's the experience of it in time. And that wonder also is talked about here extensively. For instance, we have the reference here that we're not in the flesh, we're in the spirit now. Verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If the Spirit's not present, he's not going to know salvation. He's not going to know forgiveness. But the God who chose me from eternity, who gave Jesus Christ in time, has given me his Spirit so that right now I have 
that precious gift living within me, giving me to know that I belong to Jesus Christ. And the work of that Spirit is such that He causes me to see my sin, causes me to flee from it, causes me to cling to the cross, to know the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ, and to live in a manner that is not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. From a legal perspective, the cross accomplished the wonder. But in time, then, by His Spirit, He works that knowledge and that sanctification in our lives, making us to be His own. He throws the devil out of our heart. The devil who lives within us and takes control casts the devil out, and now Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling on the throne of our hearts. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. Oh, that depraved nature still clings to us, but that which defines us now is that we are no longer according to the flesh. We're according to the Spirit. And again, that's the emphasis here that the Apostle is speaking of here. You now are new creatures. You are those who are God's children, chosen from eternity, given the gift of a Savior, and now in time, gifted with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, so that now you confess, Abba, Father. You know God as your Father. That wonder results in the fact that Jesus is the one living in my heart. And Jesus is the one who now is at work within me. So at work within me is he that he gives me to understand and to know the wonder of that image by which I reflect God. He recreates me in righteousness and holiness. He gives me the wonder of that renewal of that image. Restored in the knowledge of God and restored in the wonder of knowing God, loving Him, and living for Him. What does this mean, beloved? This means that God, by a wonder of grace, has restored us into covenant friendship with Himself. That which we lost in Adam is now restored in Jesus Christ. Salvation and the covenant go together. It's not possible to be included in the covenant, but then not saved. Or to be saved, but not included in the covenant. We realize we can be in the sphere of the covenant outside of salvation at times. And there is that with regard to children even of believers. Not all of our children are necessarily in the covenant. We baptize them. We give them the promise as God requires of us. But we do so understanding that some may remain in the sphere of the covenant. Some members of the church may not know in their hearts the wonder of their salvation. They remain in that sphere of the covenant. But those whom God takes to himself, he embraces as his own and gives them to know communion and fellowship with him. When Jesus died, he did so as the head of the covenant so that the one who is the head of the covenant now atones for the sins of his covenant people and takes us now into communion and fellowship with the living God. And God continues the work of His Spirit in our hearts, a work that will continue until we die. We have that sign and that seal on us that we are different, that we stand outside, apart from the world, and that we belong. Beloved, we belong. We're not alone. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're members of God's family, members from eternity, in time, and now, by the gift of the Spirit, we confess that wonder. God is my Father. God has taken me a spiritual orphan 
and he's adopted me into his family. And now he looks upon me in that wonder of grace. And I confess, he's not ashamed to call me his own. Jesus Christ is my eldest brother, and he's not ashamed to call me a brother. And now we walk with him, we talk with him, and we share a common goal, the glory and honor of his holy name. And our desire is to thank him and to praise him now and to all eternity. And then he binds us together with fellow saints who share that glorious confession so that we're not going down life's pathway alone. We have each other. And it's the love of God in Jesus Christ that unites us. Beloved, this is the greatest comfort that one could ever know. Am I living, are you living in the consciousness of this wonder? Do you wake up in the morning and remind yourself, this is who I am. I am a new creature in Christ who's been restored in communion and fellowship with a living God. I am not alone. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, this truth gives us comfort in every sorrow. And many are the sorrows that we, as God's people, experience. Comfort is needed, and we know that very well. Some have great sorrows, great evils in life, and that comfort then is all the more desperately needed. We realize that when one faces great evil, heartache, trouble, trials, afflictions, death, we need comfort. And we're not going to find that comfort in the things of this life. But that comfort is found in the wonder of the gospel and my union to Christ. Comfort is experienced from an earthly perspective now when the evil that we identify in our lives is removed. Maybe we get a sliver in our finger and it hurts and there's pain and it starts to swell. But once that sliver is removed, now there's comfort because now it's gone. The great sorrow in our life must be taken away in order that we might know comfort. Sometimes comfort comes in this way. The evil doesn't go away. The evil stays. But there's this assurance. Someday it's going to be gone. We go forward knowing there's a day when these sorrows are going to end. There's a day when this pain, though it continues, is going to be no more. And the comfort I have then is not only with regard to that truth that the evils that I now experience are going to be gone, but it's even greater than that. It's this comfort. The evils that I now identify in my life are not only going to be gone, but I believe that God is using them now to accomplish something that's good in my life. That's verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It's not just that it's going to go away. Perhaps it will never go away. But I believe it's for my good. Facing surgery, for instance, as Joel has to do again this coming week, nobody wants to do that. Nobody desires that. It's terrifying. It's painful. The recovery is that which we look up against. But when I know that I need to do it because it's going to accomplish something that's good, then that gives me comfort. I know that I need to endure it because something's going to come out of it that will be profitable. 
That's the testimony of the doctors. That's the testimony of those who are around me. And so we submit to it. Beloved, for all those reasons and more, we have the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. A comfort that removes the guilt. It removes the shame. A comfort that takes away all of the horrible evils in our lives. A comfort that assures us all those troubles are working together for my good and for my salvation. I've offended God with my sin. I've hurt others with those sins. There's shame. And sometimes shame is the most debilitating experience of our lives. The shame of what we've done, how we've done it, and now not even being able to see forward how to go forward. God comes to us with this comforting knowledge and God says, that guilt, that shame, it's gone. Jesus took it upon himself. Lift your head to the heavens. Look to him and press on knowing that the guilt, the shame of your sin has been removed. God is not angry with you. God is not dealing with you in anger. What a tremendous comfort, beloved, in the midst of the struggles and challenges and trials of life to know that I belong to Jesus Christ. And belonging to Jesus Christ, God's attitude toward me is that of everlasting love, care, and working everything together for my good. I'm always accompanied by someone. And that one is one who sticks closer than a brother. Friends may forsake. Friends may turn their back on me. But this one will not. I am not alone. That's the beautiful truth that's expressed at the conclusion of Romans 8 with this doxology. Again, that fear of being alone, that fear, will the struggles that I'm experiencing in life cut me off from God? Are the troubles that I'm experiencing in life evidence of God's hatred toward me? Is God cutting me off? Is the devil more powerful than God? That the devil is using these things in my life to cut me off from God. We know those struggles. Job did. Job wrestled with that. His friends brought railing accusations that were not fair against him. We face temptations and we know this. Jesus is with me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He is with me in his grace and in his love. And he will not allow me to be overcome. I may fall. I may trip. I may give in to sin and temptation for a time. But he's holding me by his right hand. And he's preserving and keeping me by his counsel. So that afterward he can receive me to glory. This is his power, his might. My salvation is not dependent on me, not my strength. If it were, I would be doomed. But I'm not alone because he's with me. And he's not sending me away to do it myself. I would never be able to do that. He's with me through the trials, through the surgeries, through the pain, through the loss, protecting me, preserving me, keeping me from the devil and from my own flesh. And my Father in heaven will never cast me off. He's drawing me to himself. And he's using all these experiences to prepare me for that place in glory that he already has ordained for me. He always restores his own. He will not allow us to continue unrepentantly in sin, but he will bring us to repentance. He will restore us because he's faithful. And he will use the rebuke. He will use the word. He will use prayer 
as means in his hand in order to bring us to Christ and to see the wonder of his love and his care, his mercy unfailing. We confess our sin, he wipes away our tears. And he's not ashamed of me. Imagine how ashamed you would be of a child who acted like you did if you were their parent. God is not ashamed. He calls us his own children, embracing us in that covenant love and giving us the blessed reality that for me, my comfort is knowing nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And God's upholding you. He's upholding me through every sorrow. He sends blows sometimes in our lives. He takes from us loved ones. Sometimes it's a spouse with whom we've been married many years. Sometimes it's a child. Sometimes it's an experience of another, a parent, another loved one that we held close and we treasured. God takes from us. God sometimes debilitates with a stroke or with a heart attack, with cancer, and its slow effect on one's body. There are illnesses. There are Sometimes struggles that we have for our whole life long. We're never going to overcome that illness. It's going to be with us till we die. But God works in us then the grace and through medical means the ability to deal with it. Sometimes there's slow debilitating diseases that affect our muscles and loss of muscle tone and pretty soon we become increasingly weak. Sometimes it's a matter of our mind, dementia and loss of understanding who we are even and how reality exists around us. So many difficulties confront us. Sometimes family situations that are impossible for us to bear. Children forsaking their parents. And then not only just forsaking their parents, forsaking Christ. Turning their back on the church, wanting nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with its church. Sorrow, agony, and pain. Sometimes it's a spouse who walks away from another, perhaps even walks away from their children. And we shake our heads. How can that one do that? How can that one just turn their back on their children? So selfish, so consumed with their own pleasure, their own idea. Children don't understand. Untold pain is left in that home. And then, beloved, there's this reality. We stand at death's door, and everything that we enjoy in this life in terms of possessions are going to be left behind. We can't take anything with us. Everything, even relationships, are going to be cut off and are going to be made new in glory. The only relationship that survives death is my union to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why for me to live is Christ and to die then is gain. Now I get Him in all of His fullness. But through it all, beloved, what is the constant? God is with you. Christ is walking with you. We have a compassionate, merciful high priest. We have one who knows the feelings of our infirmities, who is tempted in every respect like as we are, yet without sin. One who knows the sorrow and the struggle of leaving his mother and having to commend her to his friend to take care of after his death. One who knows suffering and knows the pain of having to be forsaken. He suffered. He was tempted. And he's our merciful high priest. He's able to succor. That means he's able to help. He's able to run to our cry. He hears our cry. Our cry of distress and need. And he runs to us. He sends his angels. 
He sends grace to comfort and to encourage us in the midst of temptation, in the midst of sorrow. No matter the heartache, no matter the struggle, Christ runs to our cry and he cares for us. Sometimes we don't even think we can pray. We just cry, Lord, help. And we have this assurance. Our prayer is heard for Christ's sake. And because I belong to him, he's listening. He knows and he is with me through this sorrow, through this struggle. He's in control. What a beautiful truth. He's in control. Not a hair can fall from my head. Nothing is coming to me from the devil directly as though the devil is more powerful than God or more powerful than my Savior. Jesus is in control of it. Beloved, why then this grief? Why does Jesus allow this? Sometimes that's our struggle, is it not? Why me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Now we have to confess sometimes the pride of that. Who do we think we are? That we would be exempt. If Jesus wasn't exempt, if we go back through the scriptures and we see the saints that were subjected to such sorrow, why would we think that we would be worthy of exemption? Are we so much more holy, so much more faithful? And also this, what do we think we deserve? We act as though we're entitled, that we're entitled to something better. We deserve hell. We don't deserve anything better. Why is there this grief then? We're humbled and we're brought to acknowledge our own sinfulness even in asking those questions. But they're natural. They come as a result of our flesh. And this is God's answer through his loving son. Because it's good for you. Because I know what's best for you. Now we don't want to think that way. God says, I know it hurts. But as your loving father who knows you and knows what's necessary to prepare you for your unique place in glory, you need this. We want pity. We can't imagine how it can be for good. But God assures us, I will give you grace. I will sustain you. And everything is working together for good, for my glory and for your salvation. Beloved, this is the only comfort. There is no other comfort possible. There's not comfort found in the fact that somehow the devil is having his way now, but God somehow is going to eventually overcome the power of the devil. So that now God is in heaven weeping. He wishes it wasn't happening to us. He's compassionate toward us, but he can't overcome or change what the devil is doing. That's not comfort. That's terrifying that the devil is able to have the upper hand and that he can rule our lives apart from God. The comfort is found in this, beloved. Our Heavenly Father and our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, does not just want to take away our sorrows. He doesn't want to just take away some of them. We don't just look ahead hoping for a life that's going to be smooth, that's going to be without so much sorrow. But we can say this, He's working a perfect work and He's working it together for my good and He's going to bring me forth as gold. How does the catechism and the scriptures put it? That we are more than conquerors. That's amazing. How can I be more than a conqueror? Jesus says, you will overcome all these enemies. But even more, you're going to be more than a conqueror. That is, you will not only defeat the enemy, but everything that the enemy is involved in and serves the enemy is serving your cause. 
Think about that. Wicked men rose up against Jesus. They thought they were destroying the Son of God. And God is using it to serve your and my salvation. And even the exaltation of His own Son. Every single thing that the devil ordains and that the devil brings against us, God using for good, turning it, and using it in subservience to our salvation, drawing us closer to himself, knowing what we need even better than we. And even death, an instrument from God by which he destroys the old man of sin and brings us into the fullness of glory. Death serving God's purpose to bring us into the perfection of that covenant joy. Beloved, our cry to God is strengthen my faith. What a wondrous comfort God has given me in every situation of life. Give me patience. Give me contentment. And teach me more and more to look to thee alone. And to trust in thy will. And to pray thy will be done. Believing that that will, as the will of my loving Heavenly Father, truly is for my good and my salvation. In order for us to know and to live in that experience, the Catechism says there's three things that are necessary. How great my sins and miseries are, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries, and how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. This becomes our daily life. This isn't something that while we're children we know our sin, and then middle age we're able to experience our deliverance, and then finally we get to thankfulness when we get old. This is your life and my life every single day. We wake up in the morning reminded of my sin, the wonder of my deliverance, and the thankfulness that I owe to God today. We go to bed at night confessing our sin, the wonder of the deliverance that's in Christ, and committed to living in thankfulness to God. We look to Him for help. We can't do this ourselves. We trust Jehovah God to give me the grace I need in order to know and confess my sin, to know the wonder of my deliverance and to live in thankfulness. All that I am, I owe to him and completely dependent I am. And beloved, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicting of us of our sin, causing us to see that there's nowhere else that we can look. We can't escape our misery of ourselves. The only possibility of salvation is through Jesus Christ. The Spirit giving us to know the wonder we're not alone. We belong to him. And working in us that desire to be thankful. And that awareness that my salvation is all of God and I owe my all to him. Beloved, thank God for the faith worked in your heart by which you confess according to the Spirit, Abba, Father, by which you make the dexology here of Romans 8 your own. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nay, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him that loved me. For I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we stand before thee in awe. We who cast ourselves off from thee, apart from thy presence, we who cast ourselves on a path of loneliness, despair, destruction, and hell have been made the recipients of thy love and thy mercy. And thou hast embraced us and given us a Savior. And thou dost work by thy Spirit in our hearts. And Lord, cause that we might go forward as those who know and confess 
I'm not alone. I belong. And belonging, I have that only comfort. Amen.